know if you've ever heard of the man John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was a philosopher and pastor in the medieval time. If you know anything about John Wycliffe, then the one thing that you might know about him is that he was ferocious in wanting to get the Bible out in the common language. At the time, the Bible was only available in the Latin Vulgate is what it was called. And it was only preached in Latin. Some of you may have even gone to Catholic services when you were kids that was preached in Latin. But John Wycliffe wanted and saw the need to shift the focus away from the papal authority to Scripture's authority. He thought it was important. He thought it was a necessity. He thought it was a need for the people to hear the Bible in their own native language and read it for themselves. And so he pursued that. And multiple times he was charged with heresy based on this. And multiple times he was then set free. John Wycliffe would die at an old age. He would end up having a stroke in his church on December 28th. And December 31st, he would end up dying. About 30 years later, the Roman Catholic Church would charge him with heresy again when he couldn't defend himself because he was laying in a grave. And he was charged with heresy. He was dug up and he was burned at the stake and his ashes were scattered in the river. But something was happening. Around the time of his death, there was another John, a John Huss, that had picked up his Readings. John Huss was a teacher and also a rector. It's a fancy word for pastor. And John Huss started reading John Wycliffe's writings and thought to himself, how could they condemn this man? I see no heresy in his writings. And so John Huss ended up taking up the legacy of John Wycliffe, saying, no, we must get the Bible translated in the native language. We must preach the Bible in the native language. John Huss was born in the Czech. Unfortunately, John Huss would also be charged with this, and he would not live to be an old man, but instead he would be burned at the stake. And legend has it that as he is being burned at the stake, he cries out, You may burn this goose. Hus in the Czech meant goose. You may burn this goose, but in a hundred years, there will be a swan that comes. A hundred years later, there was a fiery little monk in Germany that came onto the scene. Well, I don't know if he was little or not. Wikipedia doesn't give his height. He would then take up the legacy of John Huss, who took up the legacy of John Wycliffe, and start what is known as the Reformation. I think in our passage this morning, we see something similar happening. As John Wycliffe prepared the way for John Huss, who prepared the way for Martin Luther, we see John the Baptist come on the scene, who was the one to prepare the way for 
the Messiah. We'll see in our passage this morning as John the Baptist is preparing the way he is preaching. He is delivering this message, this message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near, it is at hand, it has come close to everybody. His message is one of repentance which leads those to confess their sins and be baptized in the Jordan River. As John the Baptist is gaining popularity, the Pharisees and Sadducees think to themselves, hey, we have to go and check out this guy. And they come and check him out. And John has a pretty pointed message for the Pharisees and Sadducees about what repentance looks like. John's message is a message of urgency. It's a message of the kingdom of heaven. It's a message of pleading to be converted and to become a citizen of heaven. And so this morning, what you could boil what John is doing down is this. That for those who repent and trust in the Messiah will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so what I'd like to do this morning is take a look at two aspects of this passage. I'd like to take a look at the messenger. I'd like to take a look at the messenger. And then I'd like to take a look at the message itself. We have the messenger. Who is it? It is John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you read in the beginning of Luke, what you will read is that Zechariah was a priest. As he went into the temple, he had a vision. An angel of the Lord came to him and told him that him and his wife, who were barren and had no children, would conceive that he was to call this child John, and that John would be the one to prepare the way. Zechariah, having a little, little bit of doubt in his heart, says, how can this be for him or for myself and, and my wife are old in years? Zechariah knew biology. He didn't miss that day of class. And because of that, Zechariah's mouth was shut. And he goes home and people know that he had a vision. A few months later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, travels to visit Elizabeth. And upon seeing Elizabeth, Elizabeth recognizes that this boy or this child in her womb just leaped for joy just at the presence of Mary because Mary is carrying the Messiah. And Elizabeth recognizes and praises God for this child that Elizabeth is in. But we cannot fail to recognize that even when John was in the womb, he recognized. He knew. He understood 
And as time went on, John grew in the Spirit. And he comes bursting forth on the scene kind of randomly. We don't get much other information of John other than what happened when he was in his mother's womb. And then we know right here that he comes out of the desert and he's preaching. So John, what we know about him, is a Baptist. No, I'm just kidding. He's the Baptist. You see, this is why the Baptist denomination has it right. It's the one true denomination. What other person, you don't see Matthew the Catholic, or Paul the Anglican, or Peter the Presbyterian, but we do have John the Baptist. John had been given a divine calling, didn't he? John had a divine calling that he would be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he's doing that. He comes by preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we see Matthew fill us in. That it was spoken by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Jesus would confirm later on that John the Baptist was in fact this Elijah to come, this prophet to prepare the way. If, if you would turn back a couple of pages, you would even see that this prophecy in Mike Malachi is being fulfilled. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John had a divine calling on his life to prepare the way. John had this calling to prepare the way for the Lord. He's to make the paths straight. He is to be that first person on a freshly blanketed snowy day to go up to the hill and take their sled down and prepare the path so that way everybody else could go down straight. John was to prepare the way. Or another way that we could put it is that John was the one to go before and shout out, the king is coming! The king is here! He's here, everybody! The king has come! So John has been given a divine calling. One, to let everybody know that the King has come and that He is here. And that they should turn to the King. But what else do we see about John here? What else about this messenger do we see? Well, we see that he's a plain man. He's not an impressive person by any stature. We read that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. Now, we, we need to be careful here because we can impose our culture and say, well, it would be weird to go to the Fox River Mall and see somebody walking around with camel's hair, a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt. But this wasn't all uncommon in the first century. In fact, John is plainly presenting this message for a reason. He is coming plain for a reason. He is not trying to buy the greatest threads. He's not trying to dress up in a suit and tie or ask the question, how can I culturally be relevant and dress the way that 
the latest movie star is dressing to get people to come and listen to me. No, John is making a statement. How can I be as plain as possible? We see this with how he eats as well, don't we? We may also look at this as a very strange thing because, let's face it, I have not and probably will not, and you probably haven't and will not ever eat a locust in your life. But there are still cultures today in the Middle East and in Africa that will eat locusts. Now, I love my sweets, but honey is too sweet for me unless I can put it in some steel oats or yogurt. What John is, what we're seeing in John, this messenger, is that he's a plain man in what he wears and what he eats. I mean, why is this a tidbit that Matthew wanted to tell us? Well, for one reason, it was to show that he was actually this promised Elijah to come. As this is what Elijah himself did as well. But I think, more importantly, what we're seeing as well is that John the Baptist is an ordinary man bringing a simple message to the people who need to hear it. If John had a mission in his life, if he had a mission statement in his life, what would it be? We're told in John, may I decrease so that he can increase. John is trying to be as ordinary as possible so that the one whom he is preparing the way for can get all of the glory that he could possibly have. This is John. He didn't do anything spectacular. He didn't look spectacular. He was ordinarily just doing what he was called to do. And what do we see happening? we see that Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region about the Jordan were going to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. This is the messenger that we see, not, in, not a very impressive man, but a faithful man. A man who had a divine calling on his life. Let me ask you this question this morning. Do you know at this very moment you have a divine calling on your life the same as John the Baptist? You too have been called to be a messenger an ambassador. But you may be thinking, well, I'm no John the Baptist. No, you're not. But John the Baptist is not you. We may look at John the Baptist and say, there is no way that I could be a messenger like John the Baptist, and yet, let me just say it again. What we see is not an impressive man who's saying that I need the fanciest clothes to get people to trust me. Or I need to eat or show off in the best types of ways to get people to enjoy me. That I need to have the most theologically accurate messages to bring to people. No, in fact, what we're going to see is that John the Baptist's message was pretty simple. Repent. 
Convert, turn to. You too have a divine calling and maybe you're asking, how do I have a divine calling? Well, you do. When Jesus on Uh, when Jesus is on the mount with his disciples and he's giving them the great commission, do we not read that as if that great commission has been given to us as well? And what is this great commission that's been given to us? Is it not that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, go? Go to all of the nations making disciples. How do you make disciples? You bring the message. You prepare the way. And then what does he say after that? baptizing them. Bring the message and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. You too are to take up the task that John the Baptist once had, to prepare the way for the King because believe it or not, Jesus is coming back. But this time, he's not just coming to establish the kingdom. He's coming to bring the kingdom in its fullness for all of us. And so what we need to now ask ourselves, as you now know that you too are called to be like John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus coming back, you now and I now need to know what exactly is the message that we bring. Well, this message that we see John the Baptist preaching, like I said, is a simple message. It's a message that I fear we have made it too confusing. There was once a a pastor who said that the message of the gospel is shallow enough for a toddler to come in and jump in and not drown, and yet deep enough that an elephant could tread in. Deep enough for the most intellectual, stimulated person, the most rigorous person to search the Scriptures and never be satisfied with the immeasurable riches of the love of God. So what is this message? Well, this message that we see is repent. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here we must ask then two questions. What is the kingdom of heaven, and what does it look like to repent? What I'd like to do first is just take a moment to look at what the kingdom of heaven is. This is a common theme throughout the Gospels. In fact, this is what Jesus came to establish. This is what the Old Testament foreshadowed, that the Messiah would be the one who would come to establish this forever kingdom that God was bringing. So what is the kingdom of heaven? This will be the first of about 30-some times that we will see the kingdom of heaven present in Matthew's Gospel. The kingdom of heaven is both, both physical and spiritual. If we look back to the fall, we can see a glimpse of what this kingdom looked like. Communing with God in perfect harmony. Never lacking in anything. 
enjoying His creation to the fullness. Each and every day, saying to ourselves, can you believe how much better it is today than it was yesterday? Adam and Eve waking up giddy to walk in the garden with Jesus. Never once worrying about pains or aches. Never worrying about loss. Never worrying about what the next day will bring because there's total confidence that what tomorrow brings, God has it taken care of. Believe it or not, (laughs) going to work and saying, this is awesome. I can't believe I get to do this every single day. But because of the fall, but because of the transgression of Adam and Eve sinning against God, we were fractured. We've become broken. Instead of being whole, now we are tainted with sin. What we once enjoyed, we no longer find complete satisfaction. We worry about tomorrow. We complain about our work schedule. We find a new hobby and say, this is what will bring me lasting satisfaction, only to be let down in a few months. And so the kingdom of heaven is God making all things whole once again. This is what this king has come to do. This is why John is preaching and preparing the way. And saying that this has come near to us. So the physical sense. We see this in Jesus' life. As he goes around healing people from their infirmities. Blind people are seeing. Lame people are walking. Jesus is rebuking the storms. He is multiplying the bread. He is turning water into wine. As this old world wastes away, the new world is starting to be restored fully. And so the kingdom of heaven that John is talking about here, that Jesus is inaugurating, deals with the physical, but it also deals with the spiritual. Because When Adam and Eve sinned, we were separated from God because of our sin. And because of our sin, we do evil things against one another. We try to take the position of God. And so this message that John has come to bring, the kingdom of heaven being here, being near is not that Jesus is just healing people physically. It's not that he's just healing the sin-sick sinner, but what does he say? I've come to forgive the sins, to reconcile the people back where they belong, with their Creator, their Father. 
And so this message of the kingdom of heaven is physical and spiritual. And this is why John is calling for them to repent. Because it is here. It has come. It is now. The physical and spiritual are being renewed because this king has come to inaugurate it. And because he has come to inaugurate it, we should turn to this king. We should turn to him. We should repent. This is what this word repent means. It means turn to or it means to convert to. John here is saying turn to. Turn to the king because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Convert to the king because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But unfortunately, do we not sometimes mistake what repentance actually is? Do we not go throughout this life mistaking what repentance is? I think, unfortunately, over seasons and over history, we start to water down repentance or confuse repentance. We start to think that what repentance is is just praying a prayer and I'm good or being baptized and I'm completely fine. Repentance is writing a date in my Bible, looking back to that and saying, that is the day. Oh, how we far too often confuse what repentance truly is. And this is why what John is saying then to the Pharisees and Sadducees is so important. The Pharisees and Sadducees are sworn enemies. If if we had Pharisees and Sadducees here in our day, 2022, what we could look at it is as as extremely right-winged Christians and extremely left-winged liberals. You have the people who take the Word of God serious, who who try to live according to the, the Word, believe in the resurrection and the one to come, and then you have the other that doesn't. But the thing that the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to do is they are power hungry for authority in this Roman government. They're looking out for themselves. They too have repentance confused. And so John directs this message to them, repent. He calls them a brood of vipers. He is classifying them in two ways. One, you are not the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the, uh, of the serpent. You are a brood of vipers. But two, you are sneaky and going around poisoning people with the burden of and the yoke of works. And so he calls them to bear fruit with keeping in their repentance. So I think the best way to understand what repentance is as we're trying to understand this message as John is calling people into the kingdom of God by repenting, I think it would be good for us to know what repentance isn't and then look at what repentance is. Far too often we get repentance confused with just saying it's an acknowledgement. It's just a simple confession. There's no sorrow over sin and there's no change of mind. Sometimes we think that what repentance is is just feeling bad for being caught in your sin. And so there's a self-preservation that goes on because I've been caught. So I don't confess and I deny, but I'm sorry and I never change my actions. And sometimes we see confession simply as just a change and never a confession, and never sorrowful over our sin. 
I think we see these three examples. We see Pharaoh as he confesses his sin to Moses. Yes, we, we have, we've done these wrong things. Take your people and go. And yet, there is no sorrow or change. We see Saul, the first king of Israel, as he's caught in his sin and feels remorse, but his confession is not true and there is no change. We even see at one point Judas feeling godly sorrow and confession as he goes to the money changers and says, I cannot take this money. What I've done is wrong. And he is weeping and crying, but there is no then repentance. So what is repentance? A medieval Jewish scholar, when he was asked this, said, says it is the sinner who forsakes sin and determines to not think or live by that sin anymore. Hear me say this, please. This may be the most important thing I say today, and I do not want you to miss it. Nobody, nobody is too far from repenting and entering the kingdom of heaven. It does not matter what you've done or what you have committed. Nobody is too far away from repenting and entering the kingdom of heaven. We see this in David, King David, who messes up multiple times, one of them being using his, uh, his, his authority and power to commit adultery with another man's wife and then having that, man's, uh, having that wife's man murdered in combat. And then we read the 51st Psalm. And he says, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Purge me of this iniquity with hyssop. Cleanse my heart. Nobody is too far away from repenting and entering in the kingdom of heaven. This is the message that John is coming to bring. But he recognizes that the Pharisees and Sadducees are leading many people away. And so he has an urgent message. Who warned you from the wrath to come? Bear fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what is repentance? Repentance looks like coming and confessing your sin through the godly sorrow that you have for committing that sin and determining each and every day when you lift your head off of your pillow that I will walk in another direction. One person calls sin like this. It's a about face. It's a military term. As you've seen the military or people walking in one direction, sometimes you will hear um, the, the captain uh, call out about face, which means you turn around and you change directions and you start walking another way. That is what repentance calls for. It calls for a change of direction. As you once were walking towards your sin, now you are seeing it as the most ugly thing that you could possibly see and you are turning from it and walking towards the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. This is what bearing fruit looks like. As John is calling out the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's calling out their hunger for power. 
their lack of caring for the poor or ministering to those in need or heaping burdens on the lame or keeping their own parents suppressed and oppressed. And what is the warning that John gives them? It's a serious warning. Look here in verse 9, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is what made John's baptism so incredible. Is that what was taking place is that as he's calling for people to repent, as he's calling for people to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to come because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they are confessing their sins and they are being baptized. Jewish people did not be, were not baptized. The, Levit- the Levitical law called their hands to be washed or their head to be washed or their feet to be washed, but not to be uh, fully submersed into water. What is taking place here is as people are being baptized, they're rejecting their nationality. They're rejecting saying, well, I'm born of Abraham. I am a citizen of heaven I'm not relying on my Jewish ethnicity for my salvation. I'm relying on God for my salvation. This is what John is calling them to do. Do not rely on Abraham. Do not say, just because we have Abraham, we are good, we are okay, we are saved. Don't say, just because I grew up in the church or I was baptized as an infant, that I'm okay, I'm saved. John is calling them to enter into the kingdom of heaven, not to say that Abraham is our father. We see Jesus teach us this multiple times throughout his ministry. We see the Apostle Paul unfold this marvelous mystery for us. That those who are the offspring of Abraham are those who have faith in God and have received righteousness from God. And if you do not bear fruit, the axe is laid to the roots. This is such a powerful image and illustration. This isn't that the axe is sitting there next to the roots. It's not that the lumberjack is coming out of his house after eating a bunch of pancakes, getting ready to chop this tree down. No, it's that he has the axe in his hand at the root and he is squaring up to chop the tree down. This is an urgent message to call people to repentance. He's calling the religious people to repentance, to trust in the God who is bringing the kingdom of heaven. Do you keep in step with your repentance? Or have you been relying on your title as a Christian or a churchgoer for your salvation? Do you see repentance as a necessary thing until the day you die? 
Or did you see repentance as a one-time thing that you did? Repentance is a necessary part of the Christian life to daily confess and turn away from the sin that is in our hearts. John leaves us with one encouragement. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is what Jesus has come to do for us. He has come not to leave us on our own, but He has come to help us. He has come to help us by sending the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And for those who have faith in His works, in His life and death and resurrection, receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. If this is you this morning, a person who believes in Jesus Christ, then you have the Spirit of God in you. And so when you're confused or your life is in turmoil, you can have confidence that the Holy Spirit has been placed in you because this is what Jesus has come to do for you. He's come to reconcile you back to God by placing the Holy Spirit in you. He has done that by dying for your sins. But what about this fire and fire? Well, this is largely debated. Some think it's the fire of the Holy Spirit. Some think that it's fire through trials. Some think that it's fire, meaning that He's come to either baptize you in the Holy Spirit and reconcile you and give you eternal life or baptize you with eternal fire, meaning damnation in hell. I think it might be closer to the last one, considering what we see John preaching here. We see him telling the Pharisees, bear fruit, and if you do not bear fruit, then you will be chopped down and thrown into fire. Lastly, we see here, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's separating the wheat and the chaff. And the wheat are being stored in the barn, but the chaff are being burned up. What John's message is, is this. Repent. Become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, the tragic reality is is that you will burn in a lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the urgency of John's message, and this is the urgency that we are called to as well. 
We are called to be the messengers and take the message. And how do we do that? In ordinary ways. You haven't been called to be John the Baptist. You haven't been called to go out into a desert somewhere. What you've been called to is the divine mission to ordinarily share the gospel with those who are around you. The good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. When Martin Luther was asked as the Reformation was taking place how he did it, do you know what he said? I opened up the book and God did the rest. Let me encourage you with this and then I'll pray. If you are here this morning and the Spirit of God rests in your soul, you have been called to take up this task to be a messenger an ambassador, to prepare the way for the king who is coming by preaching a gospel of repentance to convert, to change, to turn, to enter into the kingdom of heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. And you can do it because the Spirit of God is in you. But if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is not too late to turn. God has been merciful to you this very moment. Turn this very day and look to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have sent this one to prepare the way for Jesus. Would you encourage us and cause us to take up that mantle to prepare the way for your son Jesus when he comes back in all his glory. Amen.